This episode of One Hit Thunder is brought to you by DistroKid. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, friends. The world got you down. Don't be sad. Listen to $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. $2 Late Fee is the podcast that celebrates the best decade of entertainment, the 1980s. We pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it holds up today. We also interview your favorite celebrities from that era. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Check us out at $2LateFee.com. First-time guest Scott Klotfenstein came in hot for his debut appearance, ready to discuss quite possibly the most heartbreaking casualty of the grunge era. The lush compositions and Willy Wonka-inspired look of Jellyfish lacked only one thing, timing. Had they existed a few years earlier or later, the band's trajectory may have been unstoppable. Instead, they got washed away by a sea of flannel and apathy. Is Jellyfish the baby we wish would come back? Stick around to find out. One hit is all you need to make the money guaranteed. And you can live off royalties forever. And it makes me wonder, is it just a wonder? God, I'm really excited because I didn't think we were going to get to talk about Jellyfish because honestly, I thought that they'd probably be considered a no-hit wonder. But actually, Babies Coming Back was a minor hit, just enough that our producer Matt Kelly allowed it. He gave it a pass, and I'm really glad he did. Did you choose this song because you're a Jellyfish fan? I am a Jellyfish fan. Hell yeah. I remember seeing the video and hearing the song. For babies coming back and like i didn't understand and i still don't understand i mean so this is just kind of a trend th- through my whole life is it's like all i don't understand what everybody was confused about it was well arranged well written well performed catchy thoughtful like and fun right it made sense it was everything you want and I mean, let's. I mean, that's just the song, and then you go and you go. Oh well, who the heck are these wacky gentlemen? And then you go and you listen to the record, and you're like, oh, the whole thing's dope. But because they weren't grunge or hair metal, here was the problem. This is what I landed on when I was doing the research and looking into some of this stuff. Is it feels like this band formed because they wanted to create music. I, I believe they said they wanted to make pop music safe again but they want it to push back against hair metal. The problem was that they put out this song in the early part of 1991, while simultaneously another group of musicians were also working to wipe hair metal (laughs) off the radio, and they would make their appearance just a few months later to also make the world not safe for jellyfish. (laughs) Like it was just the worst timing that they could have ever put out this record. They couldn't have picked the worst time to come out. Even, (laughs) even four or five years later, you got presidents of the United States of America and like kind of, kind of crazy wacky alternative music. Even then might've been the right, time but this was just the worst timing ever this was at the beginning of grunge well and you gotta i mean like have you guys found doing this podcast that that is so often like the problem like the one thing that winds up being a a huge factor in a lot of bands successes is the timing like you come out you know like i mean and to be fair there are plenty of bands that like who put out music 
that did smashingly in light of poor timing. Yeah. You know, I mean, wasn't Jay-Z's The Blueprint, didn't that get released like right on like September 11th? Yeah. Like when the whole yeah. thing happened, you know what I mean? Like, right. like, so there are things that like, depending on, but especially if you're pushing up against, which we would then see in the second half of the 90s, that they were trailblazers mm -hmm. because the entire seventies queen beach boys, Beatles, all that shit became wildly like they just barely missed it with their second record too. Yeah. Which in my personal opinion is one of my favorite records of all Dude, time. So I was going to actually lead with that spilt milk, no offense to belly button, the album that this is off of, but spilt milk was my first, it was the song new mistake was the first jellyfish thing I oh. personally ever heard, which I still to this day think is one of the greatest songs ever. That album front to back's amazing, but that song on a musical level, the outro of the song New Mistake is one of my favorite pieces of music ever written. It is so, yeah. it is so amazing. And yeah, yeah, this is all very Beatles and Queen inspired music, but I think to, to bring it back to belly button and the timing sure. thing not only was maybe the music not timed exactly right but also their look they came out looking sure. like Willy Wonka <laughs> you know like no no even they're not even disguising they're trying to look like Willy Wonka I watched an MTV news segment about them which I thought was really cool it was like an extended Kurt Loder hosted MTV news segment that was like five minutes long. Like, wow, that's pretty cool. They used to do that about jellyfish yeah. and literally Roger Manning from jellyfish is licking a big swirly lollipop and they're wearing like cat in the hat hats. They literally talk about Willy Wonka in it. One thing I had to do a little research here is so the Willy Wonka, you know, the original Willy Wonka, the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka came out in 1971 this belly button album came out in 1990. So it'd be the equivalent if we came out with a band right now and we dressed like characters in either Kill Bill, House of a Thousand Corpses, or Old School. <laughs> would be the would be the equivalent of like our whole vibe and look at the time. So the the style, the looking at these guys, I I feel like I at the time too would have been like, especially when grunge was coming out and you're like oh yeah it's flannels and ripped jeans and looking like you don't care about anything to these like wacky Willy Wonka characters I may have even been turned off by it despite the music but again when we're talking about timing it's like just imagine if it was you know 1994 the exact time when they broke up like, I yeah. could see these guys going on tour with Blind Melon and fitting in beautifully. Like, beautifully. like it's it's like they just, their career, their short five-year span was the worst five years they could have picked to be an active band. <laughs> like, they could even, they could have even gone out with certain Britpop acts and stuff like that. Like, there was a lot, or like, you know, I mean, I think about like Apples and Stereo or any of that Elephant Six stuff, like, that was exactly the same thing, just not as poppy. Like it's yeah. like they oh, opened so for the Black Crows, which totally makes sense. <laughs> like, yeah, like that sure. totally fits. But the here's here's the thing about this band though that I think is cool, regardless. Right? Maybe they never had the mainstream success that they should have deserved, but they got to work with Ringo Starr, Brian Wilson. William yeah. Shatner and appeared on a Harry Nielsen cover album by Harry Nielsen's personal request that they were one of his favorite active bands. So I feel like yeah. at that point, it doesn't matter how popular you are. You are respected by the very people you are like trying to pay homage to. And that sometimes is way more rewarding than if you had like the number one song in America, I think. True. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know what I mean? Like, or it's it's two sides of the same coin. As I think is more of a a better example of its of this duality. Like because I think, and it, I mean, this is as 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 an artist myself who could be considered a a, a one-hit wonder. Everyone's always shooting for. I think both sides. You know, it's it's like you the notoriety and the respect of the people who you looked up to and your peers is fantastic. 
and then to be able to be lifted up by your your fan base as well, right? Yeah. Whereas it's like they never got the the never the twain shall meet for them. You know, it's <laughs> it's like they had the critical acclaim. And but there were like the fans were like, I mean, that I'm sure the fans that they had were 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 go get them. But I mean, like, you know who introduced me to, to jellyfish, actually, and brought back like because I got I remember getting belly button as a kid and going, OK, but the group of dudes who brought me spilled milk were Jesse Carmichael and Adam Levine from Maroon 5. Wow. Wow. We were on tour together. And I, I kind of get that. Because that Harder to Breathe album is like songs about Jane is a very 70s throwback record, all things considered. Yeah, Yeah, those guys were like, you have to check this out. And uh, because they're huge Queen fans, they're huge uh, The Who fans. Um, But I feel like so we've mentioned Queen, we've mentioned The Who, we've mentioned The Beatles. But when I listened to Spilt Milk, because I listened to it for the first time today, when I listened to Spilt Milk, I heard more than any other band, Super Tramp. Like this yeah. is a super tramp record. If they got it's compared anything. to super tramp a lot. Yeah. Well, I think that that's part of the problem too, right? Like everything that I read, like, cause I, you know, I went and I read like the Wikipedia and read some other stuff. And I think it's a huge problem with a lot of the music industry just to begin with, which is the comparisons that people make to try to quantify and then categorize what's happening can be the fucking death rattle of any creative force. Yep. Like instead of just being open to it and accepting it for what it is. And then like, as you've like accepted something, you start to break down its components. Like I never listen to something and go, Oh, that's that. And that's that. And that's that. Cause it cheapens the art. Like everything is something. Right. You know what I mean? Like we can sit and listen to Bjork and be like, Oh, there's some fucking Schubert and like you know it's <laughs> I like, think that might be an exception Scott I don't know if Bjork sounds like anybody <laughs> I'm no she, but that's the thing is that I disagree because remember I texted you that the sugar cubes sounded exactly like the B-52s when I finally listened to no, them. fair <laughs> enough yeah yeah but like I mean it's all somewhere you know what I mean and this desire to like that I don't know I mean it's it's kind of human nature as well but uh yeah I feel like every time it was like oh these guys are into Queen when Queen it's not cool to be into Queen. Tell me when it's not fucking cool to be into Queen. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, people people in general need an R I Y L. They need a recommended if you like. It's yeah. just for the right. the lowest common denominator who aren't gonna just check out a band. And there's a few things we gotta talk about with this band that set them apart. And one of the first obvious things is all the members of the band, Andy Sturmer being the lead singer and, you know, writes most of the songs, is a and is the drummer. stand-up drummer. <laughs> he is a stand-up <laughs> drummer and lead singer, and the band stands in a straight line across the stage. And it, yeah. I would highly recommend that people go watch the Jules Holland performance of, I think they played. Oh, it's so rad. <laughs> I think they played the ghost at number one on there. And it's just, yeah. every harmony is flawless. Everything is amazing. Yet, I don't, Scott, I mean, you've played, we've both played with a lot of bands in our day. I don't think I've ever seen a band with a stand-up drummer lead singer. Have you? Not a stand-up drummer lead singer, but the drummer for the Violent Femmes. I was literally going to say Violent Femmes was a stand-up drummer for sure. Yeah. Well, I just yeah. I, I just of. went and saw the Eagles too, and Don Henley played a few songs while <laughs> drumming <laughs> and playing yeah. too. So it's not that it hasn't been done, but the stand-up drummer I had never I had never seen. Yeah. I instantly I sent that video last night to my band <laughs> and our drummer Corey and said, "Hey, dude, do you think you could start standing and playing?" <laughs> He's like, "I'll do my best." All right. Well, you know, Chris, I mean- you're doing a podcast with a guy who was a drummer lead vocalist in a very popular local band. Did you stand? <laughs> no, I sat. I sat. Okay. But <laughs> but right. for our, our three months of shows, I taught myself how to sing and drum simultaneously wow. and was bad at both. But I mean, Phil Collins, Phil Collins? <laughs> had Phil Collins done it, you know, it would have been an easier transition. Exactly. I guess. Yeah. But uh, he had to sit down and sing. Well, and, and Scott, as a, as a fan of both you know, obviously Real Big Fish, but also Littlest Man Band and all of the other solo stuff you're doing. The second that I hit play on Jellyfish, I heard, oh, okay, I hear so much Jellyfish even in that. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so heady and and it's got all these different genres meshing together 
in into these sounds that you're right, like boiling it down to just oh they're doing the the classic rock thing is kind of discounting all of the otherness that's oh it's so mixed reductive it. yeah like it's so dismissive and reductive like what they were doing was bringing a level of musicianship and sophistication into songwriting back into songwriting like i mean because you know it's like okay so in the 90s right we're seeing the end of like the new romantic version uh, like era of of electronic music and like new wave and stuff like that like everything was getting really like we were losing a certain amount of dynamics to music. I think personally, like, I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff happening in alternative music as far as like, you know, the Pixies, but like there was a lot happening on the pop sense of things that there were very few instances in pop music where like dynamic changes and quick turnarounds and like just thought this great deal of thoughtfulness that didn't, always play submissive to the idea of groove, right? Don't break the groove because you might lose people. Like that's really where I think we started to like jellyfish was like, we can set a feel and then do a quick turnaround, do some cut time, do a place where the drums go away and it's just vocals and then bring it all back. Like they were, they wanted to take people on a journey every single time. Well, Instead of give people like a piece of candy, you know, and I, it's like, right. I, I'm also, you know, it's like, I'm a Zappa fan too. So it's like, I appreciate the idea of like oh. being able to go somewhere every time you sit down to hear something that somebody made. Let me propose this too. Cause as we're talking about how there's that five year period well, that they were a band, that they were just the, the wrong five year period. And I had this thought running through my head the other day where I was thinking about, like, what were the bands whose careers weren't destroyed by Nirvana and grunge? Like, who were the bands that had a career in the 80s and continued to have a career into the 90s? And, like, you know, like, U2 came up as a band in my brain that were still releasing hit records, Aerosmith, and then R.E.M. And I feel like if Jellyfish had started at the same time as R.E.M., they would have probably been lumped into like bands that Kurt Cobain was listening to and said like, oh, this is like what is driving this. Because like Kurt Cobain is such a huge R.E.M. fan as well. Like it, yeah. Like it, I think that they would have even had a chance of being that cult band that wasn't blowing up yet in the 80s, but like were part of the inspiration for like what became the alternative music scene in the early 90s. But they just... Literally, the time, like we said, the timing was horrendous. Horrendous. I agree with everything you're saying, Scott. They had a lot of dynamics. They weren't afraid to take the listener on a journey. That's something I've always liked about music and strove to write is taking listeners on a journey. Oh, for sure. For I sure. I have mad respect for the songs that put you in a groove and keep you there the whole time. I, I love I love that. But Jellyfish were something else. It was an adventure. It's a music. When you listen to Spilt Milk, that album, you're all over the place. You know, it puts me in the mind sometimes yeah. if you listen to Ben Folds. I feel like I feel Ben Folds in that. I feel, you know, obviously Beatles and Queen and everything, but every, everywhere you can go in that album. But another thing that I think they fell victim to is all the hair metal. I'm not a fan of hair metal. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not. It's not my thing. I preferred the... I preferred boys to men. I was a little kid, but that was more, I was more into boys to men than I was the hair metal. But the one thing about the jellyfish albums, especially spilt milk was that it was very produced. It was very over the top produced. And now when grunge comes along and the Steve Albini produced things, these very stripped down to just rock band arrangements, you know, even though they weren't necessarily a hair metal or glam band or whatever, I think it was just, a complete rejection of all things produced or, you know, it could be argued that jellyfish is almost overproduced. Yeah. The collection of artists that they got together to make these albums. Now I want to name some of these people. First of all, they got this dude. Oh, what's his name? Let me look it up. Jason Faulkner. Well, we'll talk about Faulkner, but no, Albie Galutin, the producer. Oh yeah. Who was, responsible for pretty much every Bee Gees hit song. That's who they brought in. So you have him, and then by, apparently, and this is said about a lot of people, 
songwriters, musicians. Apparently, Andy Sturmer was very hard to work with. And by the time, is, yeah. <laughs> by the time Spilt Milk came along, yeah, Jason Faulkner was no longer involved. For anyone who doesn't know Jason Faulkner's music, the dude's like insane. I heard a an album from like the past recent years by him that was insane. And he was part of a group after Jellyfish called the Greys, where right. another person who played on Spilt Milk, which I didn't even know he played on Spilt Milk until recently, John Bryan. Oh, <laughs> right, yeah. But no, oh, that Jason Faulkner record, it's Jason Faulkner and R. Stevie Dude, Moore. Dude, right? with the clown yeah. on the cover or whatever, has like terrible artwork. Yeah. That thing is insane. Just the, okay. yeah. If you haven't heard R. Stevie Moore, his, his stuff, Oh my gosh. The only way I can explain him that comes to mind right now is he is like the Daniel Johnston version of Harry Nilsson. Okay, yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, well, I'm checking that out. <laughs> he is uh, hugely influential on bands like Dr. Dog. Mm -hmm. R. Stevie Moore is just this dude who was like, he's like, uh, he had, I don't think he had ever really had a hit, but um, great songwriting, like, uh, really wild stuff, but he would just rent gear and fill his house full of gear and record stuff. Kind of Brian Jonestown Massacre kind of thing. That right. was another band I was thinking about with Jellyfish is that Brian Jonestown Massacre, Dandy Warhol's era, if yeah. they had held out a little bit longer and hopped on that like 60s you know, garage rock throwback, I think they would have fit in. As, again, Every other era, but the era that they put but out music. <laughs> Scott, that that R. Stevie Moore and Jason Faulkner album that that's the one I'm talking about with with another day yeah. slips away on it. That song where it just, oh my god, every, every the key changes in that song. The way it's just insane. Yeah, it's insane. It's like it's like almost like music nerds music, but somehow yeah. it still has a pop feel to it. Oh, it's so good. But the reason we're bringing this up is because Jason Faulkner was on that, on the belly button album on the right. album where baby baby's coming back is on. And I will say this, I'm going to throw Matt Kelly under the bus right now. He was not impressed with jellyfish. And I'm like, dude, have you listened to spilt milk? Because I could, I could almost see why if you were just basing it off babies, babies coming back, I might think it's, it's fluff. I might be like, ah, oh, that's a good song, but it's kind of fluff. For sure. And I mean, and Belly Button, you know, like it doesn't start as a banger. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's like that that record starts kind of chill. I mean, you know, the man I used to be is 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 a really chill, introspective tune. Right. It's not like we're coming out the door. Rock. It's not like spilled milk, which is like it gives you this like, you know, like uh, their own version of prayer by the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, -da 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 -da, right. <laughs> you know, which I felt like they were like, all OK, hair metal. Here you here you go. Yeah. Bam. No, my opinion definitely changed upon listening to spilt milk because I, I was like, this is fine. Like, I'll never listen to this again. Then I listened to Spilt Milk and I was like, I want to listen to this a lot today. <laughs> like, this is yeah. going to be, as soon as I'm done recording this, I'm just going to listen to more Spilt Milk. I do want to talk about April 6, 1999, specifically. That is the day okay. that the song peaked on the Billboard charts. Sorry, 1991. 1991. Yeah. Peaked at 60, uh, 62 on the charts. And I also wanted to just double check. September is when Nirvana hits, right? So this mm. is what the musical landscape is in a pre-Nirvana world. Uh, your number one song in America is Gloria Estefan's Coming Out of the Dark. Some of the other songs peppered wow. amongst <laughs> the top 10 is Enigma's Sadness Part 1. Sadness. S-A-D-E-N-E-S-S. -S. So I guess that's sadness. Really? Yeah. It's sad. Uh, it's definitely sad. sad. It's that It's that song goes, sadness. <laughs> well, that's it. It's sad, <laughs> sadness part one. Amy yeah. Grant's Baby Baby, Tesla's oh, Signs, and oh, uh, a Chris Fafalio's favorite, Another bad creation. Aisha. But then I tried to comb through the entire Hot 100, searching for anything that would remotely have fallen into the jellyfish realm, which as I kept scrolling, I was like, I'll just take anything that would have been on rock radio or, or you know, whatever. All right. I could find was Divinals I Touch Myself, Chris Isaac, Wicked Game, Queen Strike, Sweet Lucidity. Queen Strike. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i always say that wrong god damn it uh black rose she talks to angels and firehouse don't treat me bad oh <laughs> this song was sandwiched between sheena easton's what comes naturally and cinderella's heartbreak station like this is what the music landscape is wow. in early 1991 
I'm saying I'm sorry that Jellyfish was a casualty in this, but I'm also kind of really glad that Nirvana kind of came and cleaned the board off a little bit and gave yeah, us yeah, a fresh... Yeah, shook things up. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, it's so crazy. Like, And there are, like, you know, you were right. Like, the, uh, I was... Because when I think about, you know, them opening for the Black Crows, I was like, does that really work? And then you're like, oh, I mean, in that era of the Black Crows, she talks to angels. Like, I mean, that... Look, that song, whatever is whatever it is, but it, there's actually it's actually a good it's a well written tune. I, like I think that that's one of the I'm not the biggest Black Crows fan, but I think that that no. is a very good song. It's a well constructed yeah. pretty song. I mean, Flaming Lips. Wouldn't the Flaming Lips and Jellyfish be the ultimate? Oh my that's god, the that'd be amazing. Yeah. When did they hit? Oh, 80s. Yeah, they were an 80s oh, band, really? but she she don't use Jelly was like 94, 95. Like they were another. That's all they had to do. Yeah. Jellyfish just had to hold on. They just had to hold on <laughs> until she don't use Jelly hit. And then, she, you know, she don't use Jellyfish. They, they were they were right in the door. They needed to just hold on a little bit longer. That's it. I know. I mean, it's like I could have seen them with a band. I mean, I could have even uh, on a stretch seen them with Ween. You Dude, know what I mean? Like, yes. <laughs> though Wayne was far more chaotic and 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 bombastic and off the wall, like there was still that Wayne fans have a sensibility of open a sense of open mindedness. I mean, you have to because uh, you never know what you're going to get. After '94, there were so many opportunities, so many possibilities. I mean, what was as the Flaming Lips? I mean, what would have been the album that came out in the 90s for them? I mean, early 90s for them. When when they dropped Belly Button, uh, they put out In the Priest Driven Ambulance for the Flaming mm. Lips. Okay, um, And yeah. then Hit to That's Death early. in the Future Head in 92. And then after they broke up is when they put out Transmissions, Transmissions from Satellite from Heart. Satellite Heart, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart would be the 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 one that would be... I mean, though, again, that that's that, you know, and again, like transmissions from the satellite heart, though, I think the songwriting would have been complimentary. The production style and approach is, again, a lot more raw, a lot more uh, uh, lo-fi. And so would have been a bizarre juxtaposition just sonically. Well, in that time it's only those few years that 91 maybe 92 93 when the whole C the seattle grunge bands were hitting it was after that it was like a major label crazy for any weird band i mean yep. you're, you're talking about the time where you know think about 120 minutes at that time when the bands you brought up ween chibo motto yeah you know all, all these like Every, Real, everyone was trying to replace Kurt, Kurt Cobain. They were trying to find well, Kurt was gone and they had a Kurt shaped hole and every record label was trying to find the like next the next Nirvana. But it allowed for weird music. And Scott, it, it's almost like it led to, you know, the ska boom of the of the 97, sure. 98. It even it even led into that. You know, Ooh. it was different. <laughs> it was different sounding and fun. You know, bright. I, I associate bright colors and stuff with that time. Think of that jellyfish. You know, same kind yeah. of thing. What we're talking about, right? Like in my brain, it's it's Kurt Cobain dies in '94. All these record labels try to find the next Kurt Cobain, which means that we have this over influx of just moody, depressing music. So of course, when all of a sudden you've got like sell out bam like like you have like this oh, yeah. upbeat happy thing which is the opposite of what is the only thing on alternative radio at that time of course there was going to be this huge flip and people being like oh you know what like maybe i want to be happy for a little bit and like let's not forget the fact that as i i think we talked about on our real big fish episode and and i've definitely talked about on other podcasts like just because ska music sounds happy doesn't mean that there aren't like some heavy ass topics and some really depressing Absolutely. moody shit in there too. Absolutely. It's just the veneer of happiness with the music. Yeah. It wasn't just ska. I mean, Scott brought up ween. Yeah. I mean, push the little daisies was obviously like the, the Beavis and Put butthead put ween on the map song, but it, it's just, there was so much weird indie by the mid nineties, by the time the Seattle thing calmed down a little bit and it was kind of like everywhere and just alternative music was just weird. And, and you know, yeah. you brought up presence <laughs> United goes. States. They're a great one to throw in there too. Cause they were great just example. so weird and now there. Yeah. yeah. I mean the butthole surfers like sure. we're, we're on the radio. I mean, it's, 
It was amazing. I, that I mean, I, I almost feel a little disillusioned as a kid. I really de- dove into. Um, well, and I guess now, I mean, early uh, early nineties too. But it's like there were things like you know bands like Ned's Atomic Dustbin and yeah. things like that. that Two like, bass players. <laughs> yeah, you know that allowed for some forward movement into interesting things. Mm-hmm. And then all of us, and then somewhere in the nineties, uh, that the industry just gave up on interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and has never, has never really come back. I mean, I feel the industry hasn't exactly come back, but the, the, through the, the, the grace and, uh, mixed feelings of the, of, you know, the internet and things like that, people have been able to create more of what they actually want and need, uh, without the good graces of, and so the industry has had to to change. But that's that's a further conversation. Yeah. And, and jellyfish, unfortunately, I mean, what I mean, they talked about uh, the thing that I read. They did a uh, uh, a limited run box set of like all of the like everything they could get their hands on of jellyfish, and they only made eight thousand of them, and they sold out like very quickly. Yeah, they have a cult following for sure. But there's something you know after the breakup of the band, which, you know, they did over, over the phone, Andy Sturmer and Roger Manick. I think they, this is done. I yeah, was thinking yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. And they broke up, but where Andy Sturmer went is insane. I never put the two and two together. All I know is that some point in the past decade, maybe longer, I heard Puffy Amiyumi's joining a fan club. And I was like, Holy shit. How is there a jellyfish song? How and it was just this hyper pop, you know, version done by this Japanese pop group and I was like, how is this possible? How did this happen? And then, you know, in researching this it's like, oh, that's oh. what Andy Sturmer did. He wrote uh he wrote for them and then he wrote for a lot of Disney and Cartoon Network shows. I think yeah. that's where his career went. Hey there, One Hit Thunder listeners. Are you ready to take your music to the next level? Well, get ready to rock because this episode is brought to you by DistroKid, the ultimate digital music distribution service for artists like you. With DistroKid, you can easily upload your songs or albums to online stores and streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube Music, reaching fans all around the globe. But that's just the beginning. DistroKid offers a ton of awesome features like HyperFollow, which helps you promote your releases and get pre-saves on your songs all for free. But wait, there's more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. With the app, you can manage your releases, track your streaming stats, and even withdraw your earnings, all from the palm of your hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. This powerful tool allows you to put the finishing touches on your tracks in minutes, ensuring they sound polished and professional every time. But that's not all. DistroKid has just launched a brand new feature called Instant Share, allowing you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more. With Instant Share, you can keep your music streaming at the highest quality while making the best impression possible. So what are you waiting for? Elevate your music career today with DistroKid and unlock a world of possibilities. Possibilities that I know all about because I've been using DistroKid for years. It's seriously great. If you haven't used it before, you're going to love it. And One Hit Thunder listeners get an exclusive offer, 30% off your first year with DistroKid by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash One Hit Thunder. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash One Hit Thunder. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, do you have an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, WeKnowPodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. Apparently, he's still very elusive. He doesn't really do interviews, doesn't talk much. I, I don't know. I haven't... I wasn't able yeah. to uh, 
confirm that. I haven't seen anything recent with him. But, yeah, it seems like he had a cool, successful career after that, probably making enough money from that that he's like, ah, screw it. I don't need to I don't need to release music to try to be famous that way anymore. Yeah. I mean, and it's a, you know, cartoon music. It's a good, it's a good gig. You can get away with a lot in cartoon music. I think a lot of the people who do the cartoon music are, I feel like they want you to be weird and wacky, right? Like you have to match the vibe of the show. So they don't want like just a simple four, four, like toe tapper. They want you to get out there and strange. Yeah. I mean, what's his name from shutter to think does, you know, like scoring and stuff like that too. Craig, right? Craig. I don't remember, but I know Jeff a, Rosenstock does that. Jeff too does. For, yeah. Jeff yeah. does uh, uh, Craig of the Creek. I tried to do that. I'm not very good at it's it. Definitely a skill of its oh, own thing. It's yeah, a I wild. Mean, it's a whole it's a whole thing. I, I don't do well with making things that blend in. I don't play nicely with anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's that'd be hard. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, another thing, you know, a couple other little things that may not have helped <laughs> jellyfish they were recording spilt milk in la during the la riots that seems like a bad omen in itself yeah. like they're literally in la recording during the la riots and that album when spilt milk came out which once again if anyone here listening hasn't listened to spilt milk oh. after you finish this episode just put it on by the end of it you're going to be like oh my god how did i never hear this before but like put it on I recommend you find yourself a high res, like lossless version of it. This is a truly incredible piece of production. Mm-hmm. The arrangements are unreal. Like they are so thoughtful. The performances are fantastic. Their ability to create melody and counter melodies and their counterpoint. I mean, we're, we're working with strings and, and, and harpsichords and like, the instrumentation is is unbelievable and it's all practical there's no like sequencing or and it's it's astounding and it is beautiful and you don't hear records like this anymore i mean i think about some of my favorite records of that were that remind me of a certain type of sensibility as this. So I, uh, the one thing that comes to mind and something that was wildly influential on me too, was, uh, like Jeremy Enix return Ooh. of the frog prince. Okay. Right. Which again, you're talking about strings and harmonies and all sorts of stuff, but not to the, de- like, I don't know anything of the nineties that went to the lengths to create a sonic soundscape as rich and beautiful and joyous you know i mean because it's like one could say that like okay computer i'm not that's an incredible piece of music it's the but joyous no i don't know (laughs) that that it is not that that it is not it is those are two albums that i recently scott got airpod pros my friend johnny hooked me up with airpod pros and i had never listened to music through those before yeah and now these are two albums that i want to listen to through those and and experience them that way yeah but realize also though with airpad because i have the pros as well you're still gonna lose a little bit just because bluetooth is not the greatest way to transfer music Mm. so you really got to listen hard i mean I have a pair of expensive studio mixing headphones that when I really want to go somewhere, I'm in my office, I have the flack files, I sit down, I you know, plug it in, I you know, put on I burn some incense, there you go. I put on my <laughs> Set the I mood. put on my lights, I close, <laughs> you know, my dog curls up on my lap and we and I just like go, you know, yeah. because it's like this record is really like because, I mean, it was something that we were always trying to capture, too, because we were uh, uh, like when we did Why Do They Rock So Hard? Ooh, Jellyfish yeah. was a hugely influential band in that for us. Yeah. And so we were like how more harmonies and more interesting instruments and stuff like that um, to try to capture. And it's so, yeah, trying to get that thing where it's like somewhere between the 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 raw punchiness of the grunge sound with and the, the beauty of like a glam rock pop sound. I don't know that anybody has ever done it. To my satisfaction, yeah. but I'm an old, I'm an old I'm, person. We got to stress we're talking about spilt milk here. This is yeah, spilt not, milk. This is not the not the album that the song we're talking about. Right, right. On. Sorry, the I know we're that, barely talking that, about, but that's fine. That one, that one's fine. That one is fine. But we're talking about the album after that, spilt milk, which is a which is crazy 
because of the fact that the album that they had the hit on was not their greatest one. Like, no, not at all. Oh, it's so frustrating. Well, so, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm trying to think of like what are some albums that that kind of hit that same vibe that you're talking about, where it's like it's beautifully produced, it's got all these layers, it's taking you on a journey, and like you said, the element of joyfulness. And this is gonna sound wild. But two albums came to my mind by the same person, two separate bands, same person, would actually be the format's dog problems and the first fun album, Aim and Ignite. I feel like Nate was very focused in like bringing in like lots of orchestration, horns, yeah. like this, specifically the title track, Dog Problems, like that that fucking feels like an all you need is love era Beatles song with like, very true. Like it's like, he was really trying. I don't think he succeeded nearly to the level that spilt milk is, but that's honestly the only thing I can think of over almost a 20 year period. I could, that even I can think of one that just came out. I could think of one that came out in the past two months. All right. Oh, and, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> and, and Scott, if you haven't heard this album yet, this new gang of youths album, Oh, if you dude, if you haven't listened and experienced that thing yet, okay. I think it's one of the best albums ever, but it's everything. It's everything we're talking about. The orchestrations, the, the, just the, the journey it takes you on. You know what? I, I saw an article on gang of youths and I'll be honest. I think they're pick the picture of them. The, I was no, like, no, oh, no, no, I don't know. no, don't judge um, them. They're amazing. They're unbelievable. Believe me. Yeah. Yeah. They might um, be wild looking, but they're, they're like Australian. I, cut them, cut them some slack. <laughs> <laughs> oh no no it's not okay this is something else but this is oh great no because i typically i always love the australia me too acts. man australia comes we've hard. been talking about australia it dude. Australia comes hard in recent years australia and new Every zealand time. man that band the beths do you like the beths yeah the dude, beths are great Hiatus Coyote. I want to say every one hit wonder that we've talked about that came from Australia by the end of it, we're like, this band should have been huge. Like Scott, are, are you, I mean, my favorite artist of all time. And I'm only, I'm only bringing this up because she's another one that you could very easily several albums specifically to me, Vespertine, but are you a big Bjork fan? Love, Dude, love Bjork. I think that Vespertine album is like a perfect, like, just the orchestral arrangements and the the Inuit singers and the the Matmos stomping on ice <laughs> to create yep. a beat and stuff. It's just it's all insane, you know. It's all. I mean, yeah. the one I keep going back to, uh, surprising because I love Vespertine, is just for its pure like ingeniousness. Is that a word? I don't know. Sure. Is Medulla, dude? That. I mean, that's the one I think that's the one that reignited my love because I watched like a documentary about the making of it and seeing Rozelle and Mike Patton in there. And it just that that reinvigorated. I already liked her, but that's like that's when I became obsessed. That's when yeah. I, I have to own everything Bjork ever did on, you know, every live DVD, every record, every, you know, every B-sides remix album. That's when I became that's when she became my favorite artist. Yeah. I mean, there's some, a challenging there's some challenging songs on that though <laughs> i mean and that's always like and that's i think how i was lucky enough to find and be open to jellyfish when they came about and i'm always down for the challenge like yeah. i want to find i always want to find something i don't understand me too man. right like i i am not a passive music listener i want to be assaulted yeah. i want to be made uncomfortable Yep. I want I want to be, you know, like and I mean, every, you know, like this morning I put on on the new uh, uh, the weather station, um, the one that's all just mostly piano, you know, because it's like we're getting the morning going and stuff like that. But like getting lost in her lyrical content, you know, like I want something when my first daughter was born, my wife would come home often and I was doing some, you know, we were like I was stay at home dadding and I would put on. Uh, do you know the record pillow wand? No, it's Nels no. Klein and Thurston Moore Ooh. and just their guitars. Huh. And it's just them improvising in the studio. It is <laughs> the best. And it's sometimes it's noisy and crazy. And then they click into something and it's just brilliant. Um, but like she'll come home and it's like, <laughs> and it's me and my child and my child like passed out. And, uh, and she's like, what is happening here and i was like i don't know this is and it kind of explains uh why my eldest is the way she is you know yeah like i want and i feel like 
that's even that first jellyfish record at, at, you know, belly button is a challenging listen. It demands to be sat and listened to. It's got some great pop moments on it. Great pop moments on it. It has some unbelievably endearing lyrical content, introspective and vulnerable. You know, they talked about, you know, at a certain point, what was it? Roger Manning just all of a sudden wanted to be Leonard Cohen. But um, no, it was Andy. It was Andy Starr. Oh, it was Andy. That's right. Yeah. Andy wanted Roger to be Roger wanted to Cohen. keep it. He wanted to keep it like yeah. Brit Poppy or whatever. But like, yeah, you hear like the the poetry and the vulnerability and the fear and the anxiety that Andy was going through. Like, and he wasn't as much as he didn't like being a lead person. He never shied away from putting his heart on the table for everyone to see. Some, so as you're describing that, I'm thinking of yet another band that if they had just held on a little bit longer, probably would have became their musical peers. But like all the ways that you're describing belly button is how I've described electroshock blues by the eels to people. Oh, where it's just what like, a great record. You know what I mean, where it's just like, this is just a heartbreaking personal album that has so much incredible production going on it. And somehow while it's being the most depressing shit you've ever listened to, ends on like the most hopeful song for the future that's like ever been recorded. Like it, that is another journey one where if you just listen to those songs as themselves, you don't hit, it doesn't resonate with you the way that if you like actually right. sit there and start with Elizabeth on the floor and ends with PS, you rock my world. You're like, okay, I, I get what the, this is just a, a dude's documentation of the worst year of his entire life. Yeah. I mean, when was that record? That was uh, 96 Six, uh, 96 again. If he 96, just held out where we also had, uh, we also had the software slump, right? Yeah. By granddaddy. Yeah. It's like a weird, like suicide note from a friend. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, well, and I think again, if, if it's amazing how important we all talk about it, but I don't know if we can even quantify it. How important Kurt Cobain was. Kurt's death in 94 made people open and to a certain a great amount of things that happened over the next four to five years in music. You know, some some real darkness, not just anger, but real darkness. But talking about suicide in a way that was largely vulnerable because I feel like there were a lot of situations or just death in general that people were willing to not candy coat the idea of loss and I mean how many heroin songs were there that never sounded like it was a fun time they were they weren't writing about you know you don't listen to those early Alice in Chains albums and think man these guys are having a blast with this heroin (laughs) like it's like please for help (laughs) in song like yeah. Well, Matt, we've heard a lot of uh, upbeat heroin songs, though. Don't, keep in mind <laughs> that keep in mind that cracker song. Remember oh that yeah, low. Song? Uh, yeah, low uh, is low is pretty is upbeat. It low? I think oh, okay. so. <laughs> There's that 1975 song that sounds like a love song. Anyway, we're I guess. Well, we're... I mean, needle in the damage done is kind of upbeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, people make happy songs about it too. So I do want to bring up one last thing, actually tied to the song. <laughs> Okay. But, yeah, sorry. but in in 2007, in a very weird full circle kind of way, uh, there was a power pop group from England called McFly, who most oh, yeah. people don't know unless they watch a really bad Lindsay Lohan movie starring them. But they're actually a really good power pop band. But in 2007, they covered Babies Coming Back, and it became a number one hit in the UK. So Jellyfish really? couldn't get this song past 61 on the US charts. But when that pop influence went back to where it came from in Britain, they were able to get that number one hit somehow. Wow. <laughs> well, how did Belly Button chart in the UK? I, that is, did it do better than it did in the States? I'm sure it had to. <laughs> it had to. <laughs> like, Everything over there does better. I mean, not everything, but they're so much more open-minded. And I feel like Spilled Milk did better over there, too. I saw Spilt Milk in the United States peaked at number 165 on the building. In in the UK, it was 21. Not very good. (laughs) 21. (laughs) Um, And Um, then, yeah, on the UK, yeah, it did chart a little bit higher. It charted at 51, but they had seven songs chart in the UK charts versus the one in the states so 
you know, they were they were a modest success in the UK at the time. Their biggest hit was "The King Is Half Undressed" in the UK, which is a good song. Hey, we we on spilt milk too. We got to touch real quick on John Bryan was involved. Oh a yeah, lot, a lot on spilt milk album. For anyone who's not familiar with John Bryan, he's like I don't know, probably one of the greatest musical minds of our lifetime i guess you you, you can say he was yeah. largely responsible for okay can't i can't say that i like kanye west anymore but jesus christ that late registration album is one of the greatest albums of all time and yeah. john bryan had a very large part in in that well, album. Yep. i mean I, when, when i think of john bryan i also think of his film scores yeah. Where he came in yeah. and did the scores for Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, right. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I Heart Woo! Huckabees, uh, <laughs> Lady Bird, and the new Christopher Robin movie from like 2018. Like wow. very just nice, laid back, moody piano. There's there's a 26 second piece of music that he did for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that for years was my most listened to piece of music, which was Elephant Parade. Just stunningly gorgeous. Have either of you had a chance to see him live? Dude, I've heard that I've heard about these shows that he would play all the time. I guess in LA where he would just people just yell out any song and he would just play it, right? So yeah, so he came to New York one time. My wife and and a friend and I went and saw him and it was hands down probably one of the top 5 musical moments. Not performances, moments of my life yeah he builds he it's just hit a stage and a bunch of instruments all mic'd up and him he built tunes by himself and just and then did grooves and wrote things and did all the stuff and then played his own stuff which was dope and what's the Beatles song downstream it is not dying i always forget oh the name um tomorrow never knows tomorrow never loves that song he built that tune by himself even the pew, pew, the seagull thing, yeah. he did that. Um, and then he does this thing, and he did it a few times. I think he did it three times, where he just goes, call out three songs. Oh, yeah. And, two, and a musical style. And it was like, I can't even remember what he did, but it's just random tunes, and he calls them out, and they call out a, a musical style. And then he does a, like a mashup of the three songs at the same time moves through all their parts and like and in this musical style by yeah. himself. Yeah. And it's like, you're like, Oh, you can do anything. Cause he right. sees the matrix. Right. He just, he's so good that he's like, he can take a song, break it down into all of its parts. You know, it's like, he's like a chef. That's like, I know how to cook so well that if you ask me to make a souffle, I can just do it from memory because I know everything that goes into it. You know, like, you know, and and so it, you just, I just sat there mouth agape at the true, I don't like to use this word, but the true <laughs> genius yeah. of John Bryan. I mean, the sadness that I experienced when, because have you heard, I mean, we, again, this is, this, is, this was about jellyfish, but Fiona Apple, which mm. he was famous for doing when the pawn. Yeah. Yeah. The production there. And so there is a version of ex the album extraordinary machine that John Bryan did the whole record. I have a copy of that record. It's the entirety of the extraordinary machine record. And it is amazing. And that's not, what was released you're saying that he no he produced no. it first or something he produced the entire record the record was completely recorded and not mixed huh. and somebody said no wow and so fiona said okay which was surprising um and i think there's only two songs on the what was released as Extraordinary Machine, I mean the the title track, Extraordinary Machine, and then something else possibly that he that they kept what he did, and wow. the rest of it was produced by a pop, by some pop guy I can't remember, but it's like I don't and 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 ex, the what was released of Extraordinary Machine is 
I mean, the songs are great, but the production's not my favorite. But if you hear this, you can find it online, I'm sure. It is, it's just breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah, I checked. And, uh, the wiki has it listed as uh, the bootleg release. And the point of all this, if in case we lost any listeners with this, the point of all <laughs> this is this guy that we've been ranting and raving about for the past six or seven minutes, he's also involved in, in jellyfish. the spilt milk, in the, in the jellyfish camp. I mean, yeah. Jason Faulkner... Uh, John Bryan, you got this all B guy who produced all the Bee Gees hits. You got Andy Sturmer and Roger Manning who are badasses. songwriters. It, yeah. it is just a, the collaboration of all these musical minds to create this musical journey that's, that's still very catchy and poppy and happy and joyous, as Scott described it. I mean, at the end of these episodes, we always decide, hey, did this – song or this artist bring the one hit thunder or was it a one hit blunder i mean <laughs> i don't think we've don't, ever had less of a, des- a need to ask this yeah, question yeah i mean i think we, well matt i would say Sinead o'connor nothing compares to you we we didn't need to we didn't need to discuss that at all. <laughs> uh we, we knew that was thunderous but oh um but yeah i mean i think it's pretty obviously thunder i mean I, the only blunder is they didn't keep being a band but obviously everyone was successful in their own ways yeah Timing blunder. Timing. It's timing. Blunder. Well, and it's like, what's the thing that they say that luck is like preparation meets timing? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yep. And they had the preparation. I mean, they talked about, you know, and everything that I've read, they said, you know, they, the demos that they made were what was recorded. Like mm-hmm. these, they took the meticulous time. These were no slouches. These weren't dudes who relied heavily on a producer coming in. And, you know, these weren't cats that were like, oh, we're, you know, we need our 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 George Martin to teach us, you know, how orchestrations work. They knew already. They knew right. how arrangements work. They were on the money. Right. It's just they 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 this weird window of time when like what they were doing. I mean, cause I think, yeah, if they had been earlier, they would have been successful. Had they been later, they would have been successful. It's a cruel world. Yeah. Go watch their Jules Holland performance and, and you'll see, I don't know, man, you know, the last thing I would leave us with is can a band with a stand up, <laughs> a stand up drummer lead singer. Would it ever have happened? Would, would they have needed to like get a drummer? Okay. Andy, you could be the front man. Get, we'll get a drummer. Could that have been a problem? Yeah. I mean, maybe he would have stayed the drummer if he had played laying, sitting down. Like if that was his <laughs> issue, if he didn't like being the front man, then sit down and sing. Like yeah. that's what the, what's his name from uh, slow Gherkin did it just fine. Yeah. 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 So that maybe maybe that's the one question is could a, could a band with a stand up lead singer drummer become famous, yeah. but otherwise jellyfish thunderous. Thunderous. Yeah. And, and one last thing, you know, Scott, at the time that we're recording this, you just celebrated 200 live streams. Uh, where can people go to check out all the stuff you're doing right now? Yeah, we're, I'm doing a lot on Twitch. Go to twitch.tv forward slash Scott Kloppenstein, which we're do. We, we uh, I stream every Tuesday and Friday at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you go to scottkloppenstein.com, we have a bunch of shows coming up. I put together, I've, I've rejoined. Well, I'm restarting my 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 a pr- an old band of mine called the Littlest Man Band, and we're doing shows. Uh, we have a show in Scottsdale, Arizona, on June 11th at the Pub Rock Live. We have a show in Seattle at the High Dive on July 8th, and then at the House of Blues in Anaheim on July 15th. And there's more shows coming. And then I'm currently finishing up uh, mixing two songs that we're probably hopefully going to be releasing in the next month or so uh, and going back into the studio to start recording some more tunes. Just busy, busy, busy. I'm a, I'm a busy little, I'm a busy boy. Nice. And you can find me at Scott Kloppenstein on Instagram and Twitter and the Facebooks and the, I, I I'm supposed to be doing TikTok, although it's, I say it, I don't like it, but it's actually just intimidating. <laughs> you can. I'll do be it. honest. I'll be an honest old, du- you know, you forty-five-year-old man. Is it's like it's scary to me. <laughs> what it is is though is it's like I'm like I don't. I, it's there's so you know, it's it's. I also like I just got a new dog, and she and I are like, <laughs> she's she's everything I focus on right now. My kids are even like all oh, you love the dog more than not that my kids like hang out with me. They don't want to spend time with their dad. <laughs> 
but they're like, oh, you spend more time with the dog than us. And I'm like, you have been blowing me off for years. Don't get weird <laughs> Look, with me. TikTok loves some dogs. You can you can I combine know, yeah. those two loves and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just shots of my dog and a filter and some music. Yep. And yeah, I could it'd be huge. <laughs> This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Fafalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah, and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing Green Hills off the Punchline album Thrilled. Visit punchlion.com for merch, tour dates, and news. Do you want to start a podcast? Then contact Chris and myself at weknowpodcasting.com for how we can make your show sound as professional as possible. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app, and tune in next week for another episode of... One hit thunder. The string. Nothing's ever gonna work out quite the way you think that it's gonna work out. Nothing's ever gonna work out quite the way you think. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Man, that sunset is Gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.